listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 267 of Belaboured, our podcast about work, working, and not working as capitalism slowly collapses. This is the last episode of our current season, and so to wrap it up, we are talking to longtime organizer Saket Sony about his new book, The Great Escape, which details the struggles of a group of trafficked workers in the post-Hurricane Katrina Gulf Coast. Thanks to the Economic Hardship Reporting Project for supporting this season of Belabored. If you appreciate our independent labor journalism and want to support our work, you can contribute to our small production team by going to our Patreon at patreon.com slash belabored. We're really trying to make this podcast sustainable, and we actually don't know how much longer we can continue to produce this podcast unless we're able to secure a sustainable level of funding from our generous listener donations and sponsorships. So if you could, please donate to us. It would really mean a lot. And while you're at it, you can also get some free swag with your donation created by artist-activist Molly Crabapple. If you like Belabored, you may want to check out Movement Memos, hosted by writer, activist, and friend of this show, Kelly Hayes. Movement Memos is a podcast that tackles issues around activism, organizing, and solidarity. At a time when a lot of people are feeling burnt out, this show offers tools and inspiration for people who want to keep fighting the good fight. From thinkers like Alex Vitale and Dorothy Roberts to on-the-ground organizers involved with movements like Stop Cop City, the show offers moments of popular education and the kinds of stories and lessons that can help people stay in the game. In one recent episode, Kelly talked with Mariam Kaba about their new book, Let This Radicalize You, and there's actually a four-episode arc of movement memos addressing topics from the book that's really worth checking out, as is the book, which I just finished reading and really enjoyed. From grassroots conflict resolution to Palestine and policing, these recent episodes go deep on some of the issues that organizers are really grappling with right now. You can find episodes and transcripts of Movement Memos on Truthout's website at truthout.org or check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And now the news. It is shareholder meeting season, and that means it's time for workers to show up and remind the people profiting from their sweat that they are real people with real problems. A delegation of workers from my hometown of New Orleans are joining workers from across the South to protest the working conditions at Dollar General which has been facing increased pressure after OSHA has placed them on its severe violators list. I spoke with one of those workers before the meeting. My name is David Williams, 36 years old, from New Orleans, Louisiana, born and raised. I'm currently an employee for Dollar General, stalker, been doing this for three years now. Yeah, so tell me what it's been like to work at Dollar General for those last three years. I've had my ups and downs, you know, I mean... Pretty sure everybody have had their ups and downs, you know, when when you're working for a certain company. I've had my bad days, I've had my good days, and even sometimes I've had my ugly days. But Mm -hmm. most of the time, you know, I just try to work hard, but also work smarter as well. So Mm -hmm. so I don't uh, overwhelm myself on certain things, you know, because at the end of the day, everybody's just trying to... um, do their job, make their money, and, and go home at the end of the day. Exactly, yeah. So um, I'm talking to you just after uh, you spoke at the Dollar General shareholders meeting, right? Mm-hmm, correct. Tell me what was going on, what you and the other folks were doing there. Well, before we went into the uh, shareholders meeting, we had a rally, protest, and um, a few dollar store workers and even supporters spoke 
and I was one of the few that uh, spoke at the rally mm-hmm. at that given time. Yeah, so what were some of the issues that people brought up at the rally? Oh, uh, tons, tons of things. Yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, it, especially for the main reason why we was in Goodlesville, Tennessee, the priorities of safety yeah. in, in terms of all the death, the robberies, guns pointing in your face, mm-hmm. all of it. You know what I mean? So, so it's like everything that is happening all over the all over the world, mm-hmm. even in the uh, dollar stores. That's one of the main reasons why we um went up there for safety. Yeah. Yeah. So you presented the resolution at the meeting, right? Yes. They gave me a, a statement to read, mm-hmm. and I uh, read it to all the the shareholders at that meeting, and, and let them know like we're one of the ones that really want things to to change in these stores. You know improvements yeah really feel safe in the stores because we don't so yeah. that statement that i that i read in the uh, shareholders meeting that that was our ticket to get it done yeah yeah and i understand they actually passed the resolution right yes and i and i'll be honest with you yeah i didn't know what happened at first yeah you know um one of my colleagues uh, i was sitting next to she was shaking me, filled with excitement. I was like, what, 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 what happened? What's going on? So <laughs> as she was explaining it to me, I couldn't really hear her. So I mm-hmm. had to wait until the meeting was over. So after everything was over with, that's when one of the uh, shareholders came over and, and gave us congratulations. I was like, congratulations, what? And so that's <laughs> when, um, and so that's when the uh, shareholder said, oh, that, that proposal that, that you read out to us, yeah. filled with emotions, mm-hmm. yeah. It passed, it approved. I'm like, what? I had to hold my containment for a bit. Yeah. So I, I, I waited till, until we got outside and, and, and we was on a, a golf course going back to our destination. Yeah. And as soon as we got on that court, I was shouting, I was screaming. Because yeah. I never had that feeling of actually winning something or actually being part of something of that win. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, those. I've been to a few shareholders meetings with workers who are presenting resolutions, and I've never seen one win before. So that's a pretty big deal. Absolutely, and 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 the moment I heard that that it got approved, I, I was like so overwhelmed and so relieved that you know all the hard work that that we put into this. Yeah, you know. This is like this is like years in the making, yeah. and I've only been on this thing for like a, a year now, so mm-hmm. I can only imagine, you know, how people feel differently if they've been on this longer than me. So I definitely understand and feel a pain on this man, because yeah. this has been a long time coming for for all of us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I am, um, but that's great to hear. Um, so what is next when you uh, when you go back to work and back to New Orleans? Well, <laughs> back to normalcy, I guess. Um, I guess. Uh, I guess the only thing is, is just the wait and see how everything will turn out. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I honestly don't know how these processes work. Yeah. You know, but and I just tried to uh, spread the word to to all my other coworkers and let them know, like, hey, man, all the all the help. Yeah. That that you've been denied. We hear you, we're listening, and, and we're doing exactly that. Yeah. So most of the time, I try my best to spread the word to my coworkers and let them know like that, hey, everything that y'all are talking about right now, this is exactly what we're doing right now. Yeah. So I try to 
get everybody on board as much as possible. Though I can understand that that sometimes, you know, it could be a fear thing. It it, it could be a real tactical thing to, to deal with. Mm-hmm. But I let them know again, your, your, your fight is mm-hmm. worth it in the end. Yeah. Because you're going to get gradually rewarded for, for the effort that you put in, trust me. Yeah, yeah, and I guess we'll see what uh, what kinds of changes the company is going to make. Yeah, and, uh, and, and that's the only thing we can all hope for is that these companies show that we mean what we mean. It, it is time for a change. Like, you cannot, you, you cannot live the same way over and over and over again and expect different results. If you want different results, you have to make a certain change. Because yeah. once you make that certain change in a company that you represent, it's a domino effect. Once you make that one change, everything starts circling around. Yeah. Everything starts linking up and everything starts making sense. Yeah. So it's more than just talking about it. It's actually just doing the action behind it. Yeah, yeah. Because like me, because like me, you today or tomorrow, we, we could talk up we could talk a whole bunch, talk yeah. a hole in a person's head. Yeah. But when it comes down to the nitty gritty, you got to have some actions behind it if you really want to make change. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. Well, thank you. Um, how can people keep up and find out what you and Step Up Louisiana are doing? You can always follow up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram. The whole page itself is Step Up Louisiana. You can even Google us up, and we have tons of articles. And it basically shows you the the type of action we're doing, the type of impact we're making. And, you know, all we're trying to do is make changes in this world. And that was David Williams. He is a worker at Dollar General in New Orleans and a member of Step Up Louisiana. This week, the impasse on Capitol Hill over the debt ceiling appeared to move closer to some kind of resolution meaning that President Biden appears to have struck a so-called compromise deal with congressional Republicans, who have been essentially holding the economy hostage by preventing the government from borrowing more money to finance its operations. The deal would give Republicans several wins on their agenda to cut critical federal programs, making it harder for people to qualify for and stay on public benefits. The legislation would subject people aged 50 to 54 who do not have children living with them to new work requirements in order to obtain food stamps, or Supplemental Nutrition Assistance, also known as SNAP. So this means that whereas previously food stamp recipients aged 18 to 49 and without children could be forced to work in order to maintain their benefits, now the federal government would say that just because you're poor as hell and can't afford to feed yourself, that's no excuse to just sit back and collect those lavish food stamps all day. Nope, you got to earn that supplemental nutrition assistance. The work requirements for older beneficiaries are a way to punish the poor while pushing the notion of quote-unquote personal responsibility for people who rely on government benefits. Ultimately, this measure may affect a relatively small portion of SNAP beneficiaries because many are in households with children and more importantly, most of them are already working. In contrast to the stereotype that the food stamp program is being taken advantage of by lazy welfare spongers, The vast majority of SNAP recipients today are working. Many are working full-time. They just cannot earn enough money to cover their basic needs. By the way, SNAP benefits offer a maximum of about $280 each month. And the eligibility threshold for SNAP is already so low that these people are essentially the poorest of the poor. So no one's living high on the hog with food stamps. The work rules would exempt some groups, such as veterans, a demographic that Republicans always boast about honoring 
But outside of those exceptions, an ordinary 50-something-year-old who simply cannot work or has trouble finding a job and lives alone will be subject to a requirement of 80 hours of labor per month or forced to participate in a government-sponsored work program, which essentially assigns you to unpaid work in lieu of an actual job, what you might call forced labor, only somehow legal. Matt Brunig in Jacobin points out that one of the main impacts of the rule changes might be that even people who should remain eligible for food stamps may end up getting kicked off the program because they simply cannot manage to jump through the bureaucratic hoops of proving their eligibility, which can be a complex and arbitrary process, especially when you're poor, don't have a lot of resources to complete the documentation you need, and maybe are already really busy working that job you need in order to keep your benefits. An additional blow to working class people in the debt ceiling deal is aimed at screwing over people with a different kind of debt, student debtors, who are caught in a legal limbo now as Biden's earlier initiative to provide loan cancellation awaits a Supreme Court ruling. Under the debt ceiling deal, the administration agreed not to continue granting temporary pauses on debt payments while this litigation is pending. The advocacy group Debt Collective points out that this move by the Biden administration will bar many debtors from the bare minimum of temporary financial relief in the short term, while in effect, SCOTUS may ultimately control the fate of hundreds of thousands of people buried under a mountain of debt in the long term. So under this deal, the federal debt ceiling will be lifted for another year, while lawmakers impose another crushing burden on middle-aged Americans, forcing them to work for meager food vouchers, while also miring an untold number of former students in a debt trap that the same government helped create. I was on a wild road trip the last couple of weeks, as you heard about on our last episode, and I happened to be stopping in St. Louis, Missouri on Saturday, the 27th of May, which just happened to coincide with a performance of the Workers' Opera in town, a new show called Blue Light Special. The Workers' Opera was put on by a theater company called Bread and Roses, Missouri, and it featured performances by workers and unionists from a variety of industries performing a play written based on the stories of actual Amazon warehouse workers at STL-8, the local facility where the workers have been organizing for over a year. Some of those Amazon workers who were leading the organizing drive were also performing in the show, which featured classic labor songs like Which Side Are You On? and sketches of warehouse work life and the trials and tribulations of organizing in the precarious working conditions of late capitalism. At the end of the show, those workers also announced that they would be marching on the boss the following week, which is this past week as I am recording this, delivering a petition for safety that was a result of their organizing. They're working with the Missouri Workers Center, and the workers have previously gone on strike on this past Black Friday for higher wages and better conditions, and marched demanding safe drinking water last month. The petition they delivered this past week was signed by more than 400 workers and called for safer work rates more break time, and the implementation of Occupational Safety and Health Administration safety recommendations. OSHA has found Amazon to have a consistently high rate of injuries, something addressed in Minnesota by that new legislation that I spoke about last episode. Those same St. Louis workers presented a shareholder resolution at the company's shareholder meeting this past week, demanding safer work conditions, but those resolutions, unsurprisingly, were voted down by the company's investors. Protesters also gathered outside of the shareholder meeting to demand the company implement better emissions standards, reducing the pollution from its massive network of delivery vans. Delivery vans, of course, as regular listeners know, that actually belong to outsourcing companies despite having Amazon's name plastered all over them. 
Shareholders may have voted down the workers' resolutions, but those workers are, of course, continuing to organize around the country, from California's Inland Empire to St. Louis to Staten Island. While Congress is poised to impose new work requirements on 50-somethings who receive food stamp benefits, it's worth taking a look at how this age cohort is currently faring in the workforce. According to the Economic Policy Institute, workers who are above so-called prime age, 50 and older, make up an unprecedentedly large share of the total labor force today, and they are also, in many cases, working in jobs that are hard on their bodies, dangerous, poorly paid, and rife with mistreatment with abuse. In part, this trend is a function of more older Americans having to stay in the workforce for longer because they are too financially insecure to retire. And it's also a byproduct of an economy that no longer offers meaningful retirement security to aging generations of workers, as many do not have a pension or have little savings. And some workforces are disproportionately made up of older workers. The Economic Policy Institute also found that some workforces are disproportionately made up of older workers, such as home health aides, which is a very physically and emotionally demanding job. Among the key findings of the report, 50.3% of older workers have physically demanding jobs, 54.2% of older workers are exposed to unhealthy or hazardous conditions, and 46.1% of older workers have high-pressure jobs. About one in seven workers have faced, quote-unquote, adverse reactions at work, including bullying, humiliation, threats, and verbal abuse. Monique Morrissey of the Economic Policy Institute, and co-author of this report, talked about the findings and what they tell us about the systemic hardships that fall especially hard on people who have already endured decades of economic struggle. Uh, yeah, so older workers, a lot of people are paying attention to them now because they're the highest share of the workforce on record. Um, this is for two reasons. First of all, we have a large group of older Americans because of the baby boomers. Uh, and second of all, they have a very, very high employment rate. Um, so older workers matter economically a lot more than they they have in the past. And also just because there's, even though older workers have been delaying retirement, there's talk of sort of forcing them to delay retirement more by raising the retirement age, um, the, the normal retirement age for Social Security. So the working conditions under which they labor are important to the question of whether or not we should be expecting them to work even longer than they already are. And what were your main conclusions about this group of older workers and maybe what surprised you, if anything? A lot of people seem to assume that older workers transition to easier jobs as they get older. And to some extent, that may be true, although what also happens is that older workers in bad jobs and in poor health tend to drop out. And that's that's not good for them. They leave the labor force, even though they may not be ready for retirement financially. So there is a little bit of a transition to easier jobs but not much. So one of the things we found is that there's very little difference between prime age workers and older workers in terms of negative working conditions, for example, uh, difficult you know, physical demands or environmental risks or high pressure jobs, difficult schedules, that there is a difference. Uh, prime age workers tend to have a little bit worse uh, working conditions, but not by much. And in general, we found that most of these, in, in these categories, about half of older workers ages 50 to 70 uh, are faced with either physical demands or environmental risks or or difficult schedules or high-pressure jobs. And if you add all those together, you get actually like 90% of workers, but really of older workers. But really, uh, what I like to think of is that, you know, roughly in any of these categories, about half of older workers have negative working conditions in each of these categories. And when we're talking, you know, sort of uh, the hardships that they face at work, 
in addition to just, you know, physically demanding tasks, uh, what are some of the maybe less visible uh, types of barriers or challenges that older workers might face? And I guess my broader question is, do you think that the particular experience of hardship on the job is is related to maybe the fact that they're older or they're aging? Or is it simply that they're in those circumstances as older workers? That's a really good question. First of all, I want to say that the, the, the survey that we used didn't ask all of the questions I would have liked to have asked. Uh, for example, you know, do you climb ladders? Are you in enclosed spaces that are subject to, you know, accidents, that kind of thing? But what, what we do know is that older workers have about double the fatality rates compared to average workers. And this isn't because they necessarily are in more dangerous jobs, but because given if, if an older worker has an accident, that older worker is much more likely to die from it than a prime age worker. So, you know, these working conditions matter a lot more. We also saw that in COVID. You know, it's not so much that older workers were in jobs that were more exposed to bad working conditions, although some of them were. Um, but it's that if you catch COVID and you're in your 60s, you're much more likely to die from it. And we know this for accidents and we know this for COVID. What is also likely true, but has been poorly documented, is things like working night shifts that don't sound so bad, but actually are very bad for everyone's health um, to regularly work either rotating shifts or just work routinely night shifts. It, it's associated with a lot of metabolic disorders, diabetes, stroke, heart disease. Um, and because older Americans are more likely to have those t- to begin with, it likely is much more harmful to older workers when they do have to work night shifts. You mentioned that the demographics are changing because of the baby boom and we simply have, a, you know, an, an older population overall. Um, but is there something structural happening in the economy in which workers may, by the time they reach middle age, may simply find themselves uh, kind of, you know, stuck in a, in a job that isn't so good for them? Is it the fact that maybe these days, you know, there's less mobility within a job or within someone's career path that would uh, that would have happened maybe in the past um, in terms of a progression towards like maybe an easier job or, or a job that is more accommodating as they age? Well, one of the things we know is that there is a lot of age discrimination in hiring, uh, and this is not well protected by the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. You can sue under ADEA for wrongful termination, but it's very, very hard to prove that you weren't hired for a job that you were qualified for on account of your age. I don't know that age discrimination is necessarily getting worse. It's just always been there. And what this means is that displaced older workers, so if an older worker loses their job or wants to leave, they have much more trouble convincing somebody to hire them. So this has been a chronic problem. Um, it may not, may or may not be getting worse with the boomer retirement. There's certainly probably more boomers in this situation. One thing that has gotten worse is that the generation um, that had traditional pensions that allowed them to retire comfortably at a normal retirement age by based on their pension, that share is shrinking. So we're now going into, you know, people who are retiring with 401ks and most people with 401ks have little or nothing in those 401ks. We are, uh, you know, facing this looming retirement crisis of people that in the past, maybe they or their spouse at some point, maybe not for their whole career, but were covered by traditional pensions. The other thing is that the the replacement rate for Social Security has shrunk at any given retirement age. So with, uh, in the 80s, early 80s, they gradually increased the re- normal retirement age from 65 to 67. And that is that happened over many years and it's ending now. And what that really means is you just replace a smaller share 
of your income at any given retirement age, which may be a factor in why people are retiring later. But it also means that people who have no choice but to retire at a certain age. And we know that a lot of people, in fact, the most people who retire before 65 retire involuntarily, they're going to get a, a smaller share of their earnings replaced by Social Security. So basically, we have retirement insecurity. And that means uh, if people can't retire, that means also people are afraid or can't don't have the power to negotiate for better wages and working conditions. So the outside options, not just other jobs, but, uh, you know, but retirement, which would help them, you know, help people bargain for better wages and and benefits and working conditions um, have been declining. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it seems like with each passing generation, uh, jobs in general are becoming less stable. There's more churn in the workforce and it's perhaps more likely that, you know, at 50, 55 or 60, you may be starting a brand new job because you were displaced from an earlier job. So that's that probably has uh, an impact on the overall experience of work over your lifetime, right? Yes, for sure. There has been a slight decline in average tenure, you know, for the, at older ages. Not as much as you think because simply because there were always older workers who had short tenure. Like, again, the stereotype of somebody who retired at 65 with a gold watch and a pension was always a minority of workers. Um, you know, there's always been people who did, quote unquote, gig work before there were apps for it. So it, deterioration has is there, maybe not as much as people think, because there's always been bad jobs and a lot of them. But certainly there has been a decline in people covered by traditional pensions, people with any savings at all, uh, people, you know, there's, there's been an increase in older workers, for example, with student debt. How much of that is their own? How much is their kids? We don't know, but we know that dramatic increase in um, the price of, of university education has also affected older workers. So there's been all kinds of things like older households have seen an increase in what we call financial fragility, um, you know, indebtedness and other factors at a time when prime age households were generally doing better since the Great Recession. So, you know, we normally expect households to uh, have their finances to improve um, as the economy gets stronger. And that was certainly true for prime age households and less true for older workers. When I saw this this report, I thought about the legislation, that compromise deal over the debt ceiling that's pending right now that um, seeks to um, expand uh, the age range at which people are subject to work requirements for food stamps. And I was just thinking about how workers over 50 are <laughs> maybe increasingly being squeezed, and that's kind of reflective of that. Um, do you have any thoughts about that proposal and maybe maybe its impact or maybe just what it says about how policy-wise older workers are being treated? Yeah, I mean, I believe that work requirements to access basic necessities like healthcare are criminal, frankly, and especially since we don't guarantee people access to a job. And this is particularly true. Older Americans are, if they're not working, more likely to, much more likely to have health conditions and much more likely to have trouble convincing somebody to hire them. And it becomes, you know, the two reinforce each other. If you if you have untreated health conditions, you're less likely to be able to work, et cetera. I don't know what to hope for when it comes to the debt deal, because I know I understand that the administration and Democrats want to have this over with and not be dealing with it you know, before the next election. And I share that concern at the same time. Clearly, they are sacrificing some of the most uh, vulnerable people, including older workers with health conditions who don't have jobs. Just in the last couple of seconds, do you, do you have any thoughts about policies that might help protect older workers? I mean, it seems like it's this is something difficult to regulate because people are just going to 
you know, it's hard to control what jobs people end up going into, but are there any policies that could maybe give workers a bit more economic security so that they don't find themselves relegated to such positions? Well, a lot of the things that would help vulnerable older workers would help everybody. So increasing the minimum wage, increasing unemployment insurance benefits and access, especially for long-term unemployment, these things disproportionately help older workers. EITC right now, you know, a lot of older workers aren't eligible for that. So that just expanding access to EITC would certainly help protections, health and safety protections. You know, we lost an opportunity during uh, COVID to tighten, for example, the infectious disease standards. That is really unfortunate. That would also help all workers, but especially older workers who, again, have double the rate of fatality, you know, on, on the job fatalities. So, you know, all of all of these things would help. We could also tighten discrimination rules. Again, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act is not uh, well suited to protecting older workers from hiring discrimination. So that would certainly help. And anything we can do to expand, to improve retirement security would also help older workers in bargaining for better wages and working conditions because it, incre- it helps their outside options. So in that case, you know, increasing not just social security benefits, but also in particular SSI, which is, you know, for people with disabilities and older Americans uh, who are very poor, many of them don't qualify or don't know that they qualify because of very strict asset limits. Also, the amounts are sub poverty level. Um, so that is that is a very high priority. That was Monique Morrissey of the Economic Policy Institute. You're listening to Belabored a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. The journey of migration is almost always connected in some way to work. This country's history of labor and labor struggles is deeply intertwined with the migration experience. Whether we're talking about the forced migration of transatlantic slavery, the great migration of black workers up to northern cities in the early part of the 20th century, or the undulating waves of migration from Europe, Asia, Africa, and Latin America that have replenished and ruptured the labor movement since the 1800s. Saketsoni's book, The Great Escape, delves into the extraordinary journey of a group of Indian migrant workers who came to the Gulf Coast in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina on the promise of getting jobs that would help rebuild the region. Instead, they were roped into a convoluted transnational labor trafficking enterprise. Written as a nonfiction thriller slash memoir from the point of view of the organizer who helped these workers hold their captors accountable, The Great Escape tells the story of how these workers collaborated with local activists to free themselves from bondage and advocate for their rights. But the narrative of escape intersects with the workers' stories at multiple angles. Not only did they have to escape physical captivity, but as individuals, they were also on a much longer quest to escape poverty and social pressures in their homeland. They were seeking to escape hierarchies of race, class, citizenship, and culture that ensnared them in the U.S., and they had to escape the talons of immigration enforcement and escape the oppression of their own self-doubt. Sony appeared on this podcast previously about a decade ago when he was leading the National Guest Workers Alliance. And now, in addition to writing this book, he has been helming a new related project called Resilience Force, which aims to change the way the country responds to disasters by supporting the workers who help communities cope with rebuilding, healthcare, and social needs that emerge after disaster. We started our conversation by talking about how Sony and the migrant workers ended up in the Gulf Coast back in 2006. 
So to start off with, um, tell us a little bit about the New Orleans Worker Center that you had set up during the period that this book takes place in. How did it get started? How was it going? Um, And how did the signal workers find you? I was in New Orleans really on my own at first. I had been living in Chicago when Hurricane Katrina made landfall in the Gulf Coast. And for those who don't remember, this was a cataclysmic event. It you know, was not only an enormous hurricane, but also then led to the entire city of New Orleans being flooded after the levees broke. And I came down to New Orleans a few months later, this was in 2005, as a volunteer to do relief work. I intended to stay for 10 days. Um, I ended up staying 16 years. And what I saw when I got there was that the floodwater had turned the U.S. Gulf Coast into the world's largest construction site. And the people who were doing the rebuilding were largely immigrant workers. Uh, Months after uh, New Orleans had been flooded and the Gulf Coast had been battered by the hurricane, Uh, There were over a million homes to be repaired in Louisiana, almost that many in Mississippi. There were schools that were yet to be reopened, roads that, uh, you know, needed rebuilding. And and all that work was being done by migrant workers who had arrived not only from around the country, but from around the world. So I opened a small nonprofit organization. It was just me at first and then me and a few volunteers, and then a few staff, called the New Orleans Worker Center. We were trying to solve migrant workers' problems where we could. And most days, my my day would start, as a matter of fact, under this giant monument to Robert E. Lee. That's where the New Orleans Worker Center was doing most of its work, because uh, the 60-foot-tall monument to Robert E. Lee um, which is gone now, we should say. It's gone now, has been, has been removed to, to, uh, to great celebration. But this 60-foot-tall statue of Robert E. Lee stood over uh, a place called Lee's Circle. And Lee's Circle had become this great hiring hub for uh, construction jobs. Laborers would gather there, black and brown workers would gather there by the hundreds at five every morning. And contractors would arrive in buses to pick them up. And I'd follow the workers onto the buses and we'd drive into, we'd be driven into um, still dark, distant corners of the Gulf Coast. uh, And I'd watch the workers rebuild New Orleans and Mississippi and uh, and other places after Katrina. Uh, And I'd protect workers as I could um, through this little nonprofit, the New Orleans Worker Center. That's what I was doing when I got the mysterious midnight phone call that that starts off the book. Can you explain how the workers who are at the center of the story ended up in the U.S. in the first place? Can you explain the infrastructure for global labor exports, particularly from South Asia and from uh, the places where um, where we see a lot of exported labor around the world, actually? Yeah, it was a real puzzle to me at first. Uh, in, when I first got the call, it made absolutely no sense to me. It was a, it was you know past midnight. Um, a, a man who spoke Hindi was calling my cell phone, 
he had a Mississippi cell phone, but clearly from his Hindi had just arrived in the United States and um, insisted on being anonymous, uh, but said he was working in the rebuilding uh, for some kind of American company. And this was just a mystery to me. I had no idea what a man just arrived from India was doing in the ruins of the Mississippi Gulf Coast after Katrina. I used to get calls from all kinds of people, from US-born workers, white, black, and Latino, from immigrant workers, both documented and undocumented. But this was the first call I got from a newly arrived Indian man. It turned out he was one of 500 Indian workers who had been recruited from India to come to the Gulf Coast to build oil rigs for a giant oil rig builder. And as I pieced it together, the full story, the full infrastructure, as you called it, came to light. It turned out that a huge Gulf Coast-based oil rig builder had sent recruiters to India. Recruiters had promised workers green cards and um, good jobs and extraordinarily high salaries. Um, and most importantly, the chance to live with their families forever in the United States to come and rebuild uh, uh, oil rigs for this oil rig builder. The only catch was it would cost them $20,000 a piece. Now, $20,000 is a fortune at that time in Indian terms. It's the equivalent of half a million dollars. Um, So the workers, yeah, the workers sell ancestral land. They pawn uh, their, their family jewelry. They take high-interest loans. Uh, They put their homes on the hawk, uh, all to raise this money. And they give it to recruiters in the hope of a green card. And they fly to the United States for their American dream. And it turns out that all the promises were false. They're dropped into an American nightmare. Uh, There were never any green cards. They're on temporary visas. They're working uh, behind barbed wire fences in round-the-clock shifts. They are living in a labor camp on company property, sleeping 24 people to a trailer on a labor camp built on a toxic dump, and they're charged $1,000 a a month for rent apiece for these living quarters. They can't go in and out except on chaperoned trips uh, to Walmart and to a nearby church once a week, only on Sundays. Um just to pray, and then they're driven back. Um, And as they're building these oil rigs, they are eating frozen rice. There isn't even enough food for them. There's no hot food as they're doing this backbreaking work. That's the, that, those are the conditions they suddenly find themselves in. Can you, can you explain to our our listeners um, how much of this is legal, if any, and, and does it still happen this way? Yeah, well, so this is the interesting part. Right at the center of this, I mean, you would expect that right at the center of a scheme like this, there's some kind of mustache-twirling villain. Instead, what's really interesting is right at the center of this scheme is a liberal attorney from New Orleans. He's a person who always thought of himself as the immigrant best friend. He's an idealist. Uh, He's a man, his name is Malvern, and he grew up in Louisiana in a Catholic family that when he was nine years old, took in two Cuban refugees. And this man grows up with the image of those two Cuban refugees. They were 
teenagers when he was eight or nine. So he literally looked up to them. He played baseball with them. This man told me, as I interviewed him for the book, he told me he always carried the memory of his dinner time, his halting English and Spanish dinner time conversations with these refugees uh, as he grew up. And he carried them forever into his career. He became an immigration attorney and um, clerked for a judge that opened his own immigration office um, and really dedicated himself to helping strivers like those Cuban refugees reach American shores to find their American dream. But then Hurricane Katrina hit and his home and his family uh, were brought to financial ruin. So he then turns and takes a business opportunity to this company that's looking for workers. He tells them he's going to be able to bring, you know, workers in from India to the United States to work for them. So this man then takes to this company a promise that he will use his immigration powers, his immigration knowledge, to bring them cheap workers from India. And as a result, what happens is the workers end up in conditions that a federal jury will later come to find and call uh, human trafficking. Right. But Malvern and the other recruiters make millions of dollars, and the company gets Indian workers and among the most skilled workers in the world at a fraction of the cost of what it would take to hire U.S. workers into those jobs. Tell us a little bit, I guess, about the way the campaign came together. And again, you've talked about this book a lot, but our, our listeners, uh, we're counting on being some labor nerds. So, you know, right, you had a small staff, a lawyer working on a civil suit. Take us into, you know, what were people doing on a daily basis to, to make this all happen? The organizing, you know, and the unrest among the workers really started before I met any of them. Right. Um, you know, even as I was starting to get anonymous phone calls from inside the labor camp, people sneaking out and calling me, afraid that, you know, someone would find them or catch them. The workers themselves were, were starting to worry. Inside the labor camp, first there were a dozen workers, then two dozen, then the first hundred. Then these labor camps were filled to the brim, 400 workers in a Mississippi camp, another hundred uh, in a smaller camp in Texas. And in both these labor camps, uh, there was a lot of just initially concern and then just real bright anxiety because it seemed like, it seemed to these workers that they had arrived in these labor camps. And then when they started asking company officials about the green cards, company officials would shrug and say, what green cards? We, we right. don't know anything about green cards. And then there were, as it always is with with labor organizing, then there were just the day-to-day issues that just started to be the thing that workers started organizing around. There was a worker named Jacob Joseph who made a three-day-long journey from South India to Mississippi. And when he got off the plane, he really just wanted one thing. He wanted a cup of tea. And then he got to the labor camp and he slept and he woke up and he's sort of walking corpse-like through long lines. Um, and three days later, he realizes he hasn't had the cup of tea. The camp isn't serving him tea. And so he starts to organize around tea. He gets other workers to ask for tea. He goes to the safety meeting and the whole safety meeting turns into 
uh, a demand meeting around tea in the labor camps. Jacob is going room to room, trailer to trailer, and each trailer has 24 men. And each trailer he goes to, he says, look, let's ask for tea tomorrow morning. And then he wins the tea. The company makes a concession and suddenly in the morning there's tea. And so these kinds of things were happening, but the real breaking point for the workers came when Jacob and a few others had a clandestine meeting with me. I had just gotten these anonymous calls. I'd convinced three men to wait for me in a church. I thought I was I was going to meet with three men. I sort of practiced my Hindi on the way, called my mother after a long time not calling her, had me translate my organizing speech into Hindi so I could speak to these men. I opened the door of this church. Uh, I walked in expecting three men to meet with me, and I got a hundred. There were a hundred men waiting for me. And that's when I met them first. And Jacob was there deep in that room and explained to me the issues they were experiencing in this labor camp. Can you talk a little bit more about the local partners that were helping you and the allies, you know, their relationship with the church? And at a number of points in your narrative, you talk about the role of faith groups and other civic organizations. And of course, the iconic photo of the workers marching, they're holding up those I am a man signs. And so that's very obviously redolent of the March on Washington. Can, can you talk about how this kind of community uh, or network of organizations that has sort of been around since the civil rights movement was became sort of newly relevant to these workers in their plight? The workers were kept confined inside a labor camp. They weren't free to leave. And and so they didn't know any America outside of a labor camp. In fact, when they first arrived, uh, the first group of workers weren't even sure they had arrived in America. They, they thought there had been some kind of mistake. Maybe a pilot made an error because they you know, drove in a van from the nearest airport in Alabama through the night into a sea of darkness. You know, In the middle of the night, they arrived in a labor camp. The Headlights illuminated a large iron gate. It opened, the the van rolled in, and these people straight from India got off the van and found themselves in, in a trailer in the middle of nowhere. In the morning when the sun rose at dawn, they saw an American flag flying over a sign that said man camp facility. And they were somewhat relieved and somewhat concerned. They were in America, but not in the America they thought they were coming to. So for you know the first year they were there, they really were there. That The only other place they were allowed to go was this church. As a result of worker unrest, one of the concessions the company made was to allow them to leave on Sunday and walk single file uh, about a mile away to a church and then walk right back. Meanwhile, though, I was connecting with these workers. They were meeting with me secretly, and I was building a network for them. We were gearing up for a great escape, the great escape at the center of the book. But when they escaped, and I, I don't want to give too much away, but the, the escape involved uh, you know, lots of wild turkey, whiskey as bribes to guards, flavored cigars as bribes, and a, a big fictitious, elaborate fictitious Indian wedding as the pretext to get 500 men heist style out of the labor camp. Once they were in New Orleans, we had prepared a network for them of all of these clergy and unions and faith groups that they suddenly 
got into relationship with. And the most important relationship they had was with people who had been my mentors. I had African-American organizers, labor and civil rights organizers of a generation above me as mentors. They had welcomed me into New Orleans. They had taught me to look at America through Southern eyes. They had taught me about the radical traditions of Black organizing in the South and how much new democracy had come out of that. These were people who had taught me what it meant to live and work in New Orleans. They suddenly became mentors to the men. So as the men started to march towards Washington, they learned from these movements, not only in New Orleans, but along the way. There was one gentleman, for example, named Ted Quant, who's, who's still a mentor to me. He makes a, an important appearance in the book. Ted was the first African-American shop steward at the Amalgamated Meatpackers, the union that eventually became the meatpacking part of the United Food and Commercial Workers, the UFCW. He was the first African-American shop steward in that union in Louisiana and worked at you know, America's largest sugarcane factory, which was located right there in Louisiana. And Ted, uh, you know, when he was growing up as an organizer, uh, he had to pack a pistol coming into work, not to protect himself from the bosses, but to protect himself from his white co-workers who he was trying to help by solving their grievances, but who were also, some of them, uh, were Klan members. And so he would have to kind of protect himself against their reflexes as a black man approached them. Um, there were others. There was a gentleman named John O'Neill, the person who really convinced me to stay in New Orleans uh, and not go back to Chicago, who was the first person who ran the citizenship schools, the famous citizenship schools of Ella Baker. You know, he had run after that a theater company called the Southern Free Theater, and we bonded because of my theater background. John really was the one who taught me how to put storytelling deeply at the service of civil rights work and how to build storytelling as a deep capacity uh, of organizing campaigns. So all of these people who I knew really deeply in, in the freedom movements in and around New Orleans suddenly came and started supporting and teaching the workers. The book is a story of, among other things, the changes in guest worker programs over time, right? I found this really interesting as sort of a through line through the book. And obviously, all of the ways that guest worker programs are open to abuses. Meanwhile, a lot of people, Mark Zuckerberg, cough, cough, would just love more of these. Um, and you have a line near the end of the book where you say, these programs all do the same thing. Give us workers, not full human beings. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the evolution of these guest worker programs over the last couple of decades. We were talking, of course, before we put the recorder on about um, how the last time we had you on, it was to talk about a different set of guest workers. Well, these workers arrived from India into labor camps in Mississippi and Texas in 2006 and 2007. But in a way, they were stepping into long shadow of American history. You know, the idea of uh, workers being held against their will and feeling not free to leave from a Mississippi labor camp, and therefore workers having to stay up through the night conspiring to get free, and then escaping in the middle of the night on the banks of the Mississippi River, and then setting out on a journey to demand justice from the federal government 
that story is as old as America. The idea of free labor, not labor with freedom, but labor that does not cost anything, but reaps all the benefits for their employers. That idea is as old as America. So, you know, I really trace these guest worker programs through their iterations back to American slavery. The precedent of the guest worker programs we have today uh, is something called the American Bracero Program. That program brought a million laborers in from Mexico, promising pensions and good jobs, and then no one was paid any pensions. That program wound up being appraised as a national shame and eventually rescinded, but it was replaced with the guest worker programs we have today. The Bracero program itself is, you know, the ideological cousin or nephew or niece of American indentured servitude before it. And so we've had this tradition in American labor history of unfree labor being either captured or brought in from other shores and made to labor for corporations. It's from time to time been perfectly legal. In this instance, in this book, in this story, the person at the center of the scheme uh, made it look entirely legal by placing it inside uh, a legal guest worker program. You know, one really fascinating character in the book is an immigration agent named Alvin Ladner. This is a man who was given the task of hunting down the men once they escaped to freedom. Um, we thought that after the great escape at the center of the book, the Department of Justice would come, investigate, take eight days to interview the workers, and maybe two weeks later, grant them the humanitarian help that is usually given to victims of trafficking. Uh, if, if victims are undocumented, they're usually given you know, provisional status and work permits so that an investigation can continue. Well, it turned out that these workers were waiting weeks and then months and then had to travel to Washington on foot to demand that the Department of Justice investigate. And we didn't know at the time why, but it, it was because there were corrupt agents inside the federal government who had their own nefarious ties to the company and their own corrupt reasons to protect the company from an investigation. In the writing of the book, I found the immigration agent at the center of this, the immigration agent who was on one hand given the job of investigating the trafficking, but in fact had his own corrupt ties to the company and had made it his work to hunt down, deport, and incarcerate the men because he was protecting his own interests. Now, when I found this man and I learned his history, it turned out he too had a long history. His, his family uh, before him are from Mississippi. He comes from a long line of people in Mississippi uh, who include people who caught runaway slaves, you know, slave catchers. And so this, this is not just in theory. That in, in reality, there's always been unfree labor in the United States. And when those laborers uh, have found that to be an affront to their dignity and when they've rebelled, there have always been these agents at the behest of companies whose job it has been to catch them and bring them back. That's, that's I think, the kind of deep DNA that, you know, frankly, the guest worker programs we have today 
are made of. Towards the end of the book, the main form of legal relief that a lot of the workers are seeking is the T visa, which I think T refers to trafficking there. And there's an interesting kind of politics behind it. Can you explain the history of that visa and what it does and why it's so sought after and maybe why it's sort of perhaps underutilized or (laughs) maybe misapplied? Because I get the sense also that some activists may be somewhat ambivalent about um, trying to use the T visa as a mechanism for gaining relief because it does involve cooperation with law enforcement at some level. The T visa, and T does stand for trafficking, is really the main way in which we provide humanitarian relief in the United States for immigrants who are trafficked to this country. Before the workers in the center of this book came forward, Most people imagined, when they thought about trafficking, most people imagined, you know, either sex trafficking, so people brought over a border, uh, moved over a border to be sex workers against their will, or they imagined three or four people at a time working deep in the basement of a restaurant, say, you know, for uh, a small business owner, perhaps who was a family member who had confined them to a space. And before these workers made their great escape, the landmark trafficking case of the time was the case of a a group of people in Samoa. Um, There was a a man who had set up a garment factory in Samoa and brought in workers from from various parts of Asia, Vietnam and other countries, to American Samoa, so it could exist on the American mainland. And forced these garment workers to produce at extraordinary rates uh, of speed. And, you know, in one instance, had his security guards gouge the eyes out of a worker uh, who wouldn't perform at breakneck speed. You know, so this was violent coercion, often in places that were imagined to be deep basements and very distant from the American mainland. And in the economy, traffickers were imagined to be small, nefarious, bad actors to be weeded out. Out of this kind of abuse came a congressional act called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And one of the things it did was allow trafficking victims to get humanitarian visas known as T-visas. So the contribution, though, of these workers in this book was to help lawmakers and people in government understand that there were also traffickers who were large corporations and very mainstream people like the recruiters in this book. Victims of trafficking uh, could be men. They could be skilled workers. They could come in by the hundreds. They could work in the American mainland. They could work for a giant corporation building oil rigs. And they didn't just have to be victims. They could also be engaging in labor organizing. They could be empowered. And believe it or not, all of that was held against us uh, when we first made the case that these workers were trafficked. People who studied trafficking, experts on trafficking, and adjudicators would tell us, well, this is not how trafficking victims look. Uh, This is not what trafficking is imagined as in the United States. I knew from talking to the workers that these workers passed the test of trafficking and forced labor, which was they were moved from one place to another to perform forced labor. And when they wanted to leave that coercive situation, 
they didn't feel free to leave. Um, that's the test. I knew these workers passed that test, but you know, not everybody imagined trafficking victims this way. So what we were fighting for was these trafficking visas, these T visas. And eventually, you know, after a hard-fought battle, these workers got those visas. But you're right, a lot of advocates will say that cooperation with law enforcement should not be a requisite to get these visas. You know, in this instance, these workers were cooperating with law enforcement. These workers walked all the way from New Orleans to Washington and stood outside the doorstep of the Department of Justice to participate in an investigation and to cooperate with law enforcement. The problem was that the law enforcement agent who they were supposedly uh, needing to cooperate with had corrupt ties to the company. This was the ICE agent who had made it his job not to investigate trafficking and help bring an indictment against the traffickers. It was his job to actually make criminals out of the trafficking victims to incarcerate them and deport them because he wanted to cover up his own role in relationship to the company. That's some of the problems with law enforcement cooperation. It really should be the case that verification by a non-law enforcement government agency like uh, like a labor enforcement agency, the Department of Labor or the the EEOC that does civil rights enforcement or, you know, OSHA or, you know, another division, the wage and hour division of the Department of Labor, these kinds of agencies should be able to verify that workers are ringing the alarm bells of trafficking and should get these visas. So it's very welcome that the Biden administration has given OSHA, for example, recently, uh, the right to do that, the right to issue these letters so that workers can take those letters to the Department of Justice and activate protections. There's also a you know, instances where there aren't corrupt law enforcement officials. There are straight law enforcement officials, police, and agents who don't have corrupt ties. And yet, workers justifiably are very afraid to come forward because in their experience, they've gone through threats, um, including threats of abuse, threats of retaliation. Employers have told them as part of their scheme to hold workers captive, employers have told them that they have their friends with the police and they will call the police. So workers are afraid. And from a humanitarian standpoint, it really matters how law enforcement interacts. And it's really best if law enforcement comes in later and the workers get the immigration relief they need first. Obviously, you couldn't go into depth for the stories of every single worker that you helped or every character you encountered. Can you talk about how you chose the different narratives that you interwove into this story, aside from the workers you were helping, but you know the, the corrupt immigration lawyer, the agents in the government who helped or hindered your case? And, and also, there are various points in the story where you integrate your own immigration story into, into the narrative. And, and I was just curious as to how you structured that and why you pieced those elements together in the way that you did. I found out very quickly as I started to think about and structure the book that it's impossible to tell the story of 500 people. You know, a book needs a few point of view characters. And so I picked four from among hundreds of hours of interviews I did with dozens and dozens of workers, you know, for different reasons. One, the workers at the center of this book were truly centers of 
the campaign. They were they they held levers, they had hinge points in the story, but they were also deeply compelling characters. And I really wanted to write this book as you know half noir thriller, half love story. Trafficking is a crime, and so the overall structure of crime thriller uh, to hang the plot on was really really appealing. And then, you know, every immigration story is a love story. And I wanted to enter this book through the love stories of these men. And I found these five or six really, really beautiful, compelling love stories. At the center of this book, there's, for example, a man named Ebi Raju. Ebi isn't just a trafficking victim. Long before he becomes a labor leader and even before he's trafficked to America, his biggest problem is he's a 20-something-year-old young man who is a migrant worker, he comes home, and his mother is dragging him into an arranged marriage that he doesn't want. He just doesn't want to get married. And she's really pulling him, and he's kicking and screaming, and he doesn't want to get married, until one day he accidentally ends up on a phone call with his bride-to-be, with the woman his mother has chosen as his bride. And as soon as he hears her voice, he falls in love with her. And so that's such an extraordinary love story. And I picked Ebi, both because he was central to the campaign, but also because he had this beautiful uh, kind of jet propulsion at the beginning of his journey to America. He he really came to the United States. He raised the money, went to the recruiters, paid them, and came all the way to America, really because he wanted a better future for his unborn child. And he wanted to afford his parents a retirement. And it took hours and hours of sitting with Ebby over meals, weekends, uh, you know, many, many weekends of interviews, rich, deep storytelling from Ebby to really recover all of those facts and turn them into a deep, a deep accounting, a deep profile of his life. You know, there's another young man, Hamant, who, you know, he's a lower middle class kid in Delhi, same city I'm from. And he wants to marry his high school sweetheart, except her dad won't allow it because Hamant is not as high up in social status as as she is. And so he's trying to solve that problem. He comes to America for love. He wants to be something to marry her. His Her father tells him, you want to marry my daughter? Go become somebody. Well, he decides to become an American. So these are the reasons people came to the United States and you know, the reason they they listened to these recruiters got lured in. And I wanted to have that be the point of entry. And that took just deep interviewing. A second source was the litigation at the center of the campaign. There were thousands of pages of uh, depositions, hundreds of hours of interviews from uh, those depositions, trial transcripts, you know, and of course, the verdict. And that became a repository. And there's a good tradition in America, of course, of uh, you know, narrative nonfiction written out of litigation. But it took, you know, piecing together hundreds, if not thousands of hours of transcripts to piece those stories together. And then I was able to get interviews uh, with, you know, with company officials, recruiters, uh, the ICE agents, the guards, in other words, the traffickers themselves. So I reached out to them. Some said no. But to my great surprise, many agreed. Some may have wanted to clear their conscience perhaps somewhere distant away from the events uh, of uh, of the campaign, of the book. I don't want to give anything away, but we won the campaign because 
this extraordinary smoking gun came to light. And the man who held it, the man who gave it to us, was this ICE agent. And I found him in Mississippi and sat with him for six hours to extract a confession. Um, And the story of that is the final chapter in the book. Those were all deep interviews I was able to do with the people you know, on the other side, not the workers, but the traffickers and their associates, um, in part because I wanted to tell a complicated story, not a story of good guys and bad guys, but a story of complex people in an economy that we're all somehow complicit in. And I was most surprised, frankly, by the inclusion of my own story. I had intended to write this book as a third-person narrator. Uh, I quickly figured out I couldn't do that because I had been part of it. But I just wanted to kind of be a light presence and move the ball along. The problem was that once I was a character, I needed to be an interesting character. Um, And interesting characters aren't static. Interesting characters grow. uh, They change. They're complex. And, you know, I had to really embrace the the 27, 28-year-old version of myself that had led this campaign. And that person was a mess. That was a person, you know, who I was estranged from my home, from India. I wasn't calling my mother. I was uh, living in New Orleans, you know, and living as an American uh, in all but passport, except that I had my own uh, immigration story and immigration vulnerability uh, in the middle of my life. Um, I was on the precipice just about to lose my own foothold in America. Uh, And that was connected to my own love story that's in the middle of this book. And I needed to tell all that uh, in the book. And so I I structured it in a way that would move the plot forward. You know, the idea was, you know, things would only happen scenically. I would keep exposition to a real low and the things had to move through action. Um, And in fact, in real life, they move through action. In real life, I really couldn't admit my vulnerabilities to the workers because I needed them to trust me. But then at key moments, I would tell my own story to win them over. But the funny thing about that, as with all good organizing, is each time I told them my story and won them over, um, I became closer to them and our bond deepened and the friendship authentically deepened. And I tell that story as well of. Uh, deepening friendship, you know, through the course of the book. You know, I was very much struck by a lot of the people that you talked to who said they didn't really like what they were doing. I'm talking about the people who worked for Signal or even the ICE agent. Yeah, that they said they didn't really like or believe in what they were doing. They didn't have anything against the Indian workers, but they went along with some really horrific stuff anyway. And not to be too hyperbolic, but like, it's a moment when some really horrific things are being passed into law around this country. And a lot of people will and are simply going along with it. So I think it's really worth asking, like, what did you learn from talking to these people who did the grunt work of abusing and attempting to deport these workers? The ICE agent is a good example of it. The ICE agent in the middle of the book told me he didn't even like his job. He said that he was much happier before the creation of Immigration and Customs Enforcement when he was chasing drug traffickers on speedboats in Florida and you know bringing cartels to justice he had been a customs agent before 9/11 but after 9/11 the department of homeland security was created and he was against his will he told me turned into an ice agent 
I mean, that said, it was true, and I have evidence, that he did do the things he did that targeted the workers. He hunted the workers down and colluded with the company's attorney uh, to bring workers into a place where, you know, they were, rather than being seen as trafficking victims, seen as the criminals. And I mean, a lot of what I learned was how within a very deeply imperfect system, everyone is invested in being the hero of their own story. And it's really why no one story can prevail. It's why we need 360-degree narratives, where particularly the stories of those uh, who are most oppressed um, take prevalence. I mean, if it hadn't been for the courage of the workers uh, and the time and energy of all the labor organizers and civil rights activists and you know attorneys who surrounded them, the true story of these workers might never have been told. The story about them that the Immigrations and Customs agent was telling would have been the authoritative story. It took a fight and then a book for the world to fully accept that the workers were telling the truth. I think that's how it is uh, for all of us right now. There's a uh, there's an extraordinary contest, not just for power, not just for position, but for the authoritative story and who gets to be the main actor in their own story. And through this act of storytelling, I think I really learned how much each person is truly invested in being the good guy. Yeah, I'm just, I'm so interested right now, again, specifically, um, I keep thinking of Ron DeSantis, in that the ways that we can convince ourselves that we're being the good guy when what we're doing is completely awful. Well, the interesting thing about that is, you know, if you go to Florida after Hurricane Ian hit Florida, um, the people rebuilding the homes of Ron DeSantis' constituents are the very immigrants that Ron DeSantis is demonizing, you know? And and so, again, there's just a, a lot more complexity. The closer you get to the ground of any story, the closer you take the elevator from, you know, the C-suite down to the ground where the workers are, and then you really get uh, the full, clear story of who's doing the work without getting the credit. That was Socket Sony, author of The Great Escape and currently with Resilience Force. And we could have kept talking to him for probably another hour, but unfortunately, um, life goes on and he had other places to be. Um, so, Michelle, what was one of the big standout things to you from that conversation? Having talked to him over the years and followed his work and also having read his his depiction of that one organizing experience that kind of shaped his career... It occurred to me that the line between what we call trafficking under the official definition and just yeah. run-of-the-mill exploitation of immigrant workers is quite is quite thin and, and rather arbitrary. And seeing how easily those workers slipped from a situation that looked at least on paper to be, you know, by the book and, and legit and even had its own sort of um, designation in uh, the really Byzantine 
you know, work visa system under the federal government made me realize also that um, there are so many things baked into the system yeah. um, that are just so, so like barely legal, you know, <laughs> that like, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing that we don't hear more stories uh, in which people um, find themselves in situations where what seemed to be pretty above board uh, initially, mm-hmm. or at least, um, you know, what they were made to believe was above board because they were naive or desperate or um, or didn't know the language or... or just like horrible things are sort of normalized, right? Like the idea yeah. of paying somebody for a visa to go somewhere to work is like a normalized part of these international labor chains. Yes. And so like there's such a fine line between, um, you know, the sort of official sort of government sanctioned version of that, right? And like all of the shadiness and, and sort of um, corruption, you know, what we call corruption, but is actually, you know, sort of part of the business model, right? Um, you know, it you know, really kind of flourishes um, under that that infrastructure. And mm-hmm. and of course, it makes it all the more egregious that it was the workers who were criminalized up until like the very end. They had sort of blown the whistle. They had they've done everything they could to sort of call it their employer. And in the end, um, you know, ICE still ended up to some degree, you know, targeting the workers um, and seeing if they could sort of add insult to injury by right. by finding a reason to deport them. So, And also, I mean, obviously, I'm recording this from my apartment in New Orleans at the beginning of hurricane season. So it is really fresh in my mind to just think about the role that disaster played in all of this, right? The fact that these workers were brought in at a moment where the Gulf Coast was really suffering. And all of these companies sort of wanted to get production up and running again real quick, right? And the fastest and easiest way to do that is bring in workers who don't have a lot of rights and therefore are not supposed to be making the kind of trouble that these workers ended up making. Mm-hmm. And the way that like the New Orleans Worker Center was really cobbled together in those post-Katrina moments. And I've talked to um, some of the workers, th- some of the folks who were staff um, at that time, right? Um, Colette Tippy, who now works for the teachers union down here attempting one charter school at a time to rebuild the teachers unions that were, you know, again, destroyed in disaster capitalism post-Katrina and turned into charters. This whole system really thrives on disaster, right? That capitalism loves a crisis and that the opportunities to just do really horrible things to workers really seem to just like multiply in these post-disaster moments. Um, I just finished reading a book on Hurricane Maria And we're just going to see more of this as climate change grows, expands, worsens. Yeah. Oh, yes. And disaster makes it sound like it's, you know, an act of God, you know, force majeure, these things that that we don't have control over. But of course, it's not the disaster itself that is that leads to the exploitation inevitably. Right. It's the manufactured crisis um, that comes, you know, through policy decisions, through sort of different political interests, sort of. you know, uh, trying to manipulate and and profit from from a situation. Right. So, um, and and of course that brings us back to the pandemic, right? Which right, of course exactly. is a, a disaster of it's like the mother of all disasters in many ways. But we're, right. it's not not going to be the first or the last that we've experienced this. That and the pandemic sort of remind me, right, of this this endless sort of pushback to normal that we talked about at the end of last season in our last live show, right? That like. This idea that we can just sort of snap our fingers and return to pre-pandemic or pre-hurricane or pre-climate crisis times just by sort of wishing it so and telling people to get back to work. It's sort of like every time that happens, it feels less and less connected to reality. 
Yeah, sort of like every time there's a recovery from a recession, there's less and less of a sense of actual recovery. And it's just sort of like continual slump downwards. But yeah, and I think the pandemic, because, you know, the ramifications um, for workers was so widespread that maybe more more workers in the U.S. kind of got a glimpse of the kind of tremendous precarity and risk that um, a lot of frontline workers take on in places like the Gulf Coast when right. when those more acute disasters happen. So I don't, I don't know if that will, I mean, hopefully it will sort of encourage more empathy or solidarity or whatever. But, you know, we've also seen that disasters can also lead to political reaction and, yes. you know, um, and more isolation and more segregation. So yeah, right before we wrapped up there, we were talking about Ron DeSantis, right? And this sort of disaster opportunism by politicians, it can sort of, right, like Katrina destroyed George W. Bush and the Republican Party for, well, not long enough, it turned out. People also have this memory of Trump going to Puerto Rico after Maria and and throwing uh, rolls of paper towels at people, right? That like, it can be really bad for a politician's career, but also like Rudy Giuliani turned a whole, you know, presidential run out of, uh, yeah you know, 9-11 and yeah. Ron DeSantis is just, well, being Ron DeSantis as hard as he can. How how different has the Biden administration been, really? I mean, I don't I don't mean to be yeah. one of those people who are like, oh, everything's the same. But I mean, like, yeah, a lot of it isn't the same because, I mean, if you just look at the way migrants are being treated now, right? I mean, you know, the solution uh, to lifting some of the pandemic era sort of um, uh, bans on asylum seekers at the border was to like implement a much worse and harsher border policy right under the Biden administration. And, and the, you know, the disaster continues to uh, reverberate for those more vulnerable communities, regardless of the administration that that is in power. Right. I think I mean, even under Biden, I feel like there's just there's more of a willingness to look the other way. Well, right. We were we were sort of told to vote for Joe Biden to make the worst racism, frankly, was a thing everybody was obsessed with under Trump. Go away. We're looking at, again, the normalization of policies that are put in place in a crisis, then turning that into the ongoing state of things. It just like the ratchet turns each time. And it's really frightening. I was just reading about recent ICE arrest of an indigenous community activist and worker down there, and yeah. he was uh, and he was slated for deportation after trying to speak out about um, the violations and abuses that that workers were experiencing in the very same place that you know Socket was organizing, you know, you know, fifteen years ago. So it's it's kind of amazing how things seem to go in cycles, and all of this was taking place, of course, under the Biden administration, which had actually you know the Department of Labor had promised to try to make it easier for whistleblowers who right, are also exactly. undocumented to come forward. Right. And, you know, I mean. Right. And to institute different action, right? Like literally it's sort of DACA for workplace whistleblowers. Supposedly. Yeah. Right. And of course it sounds great on paper, but like, is it being implemented? You know, like, is it making a difference? Well, and, and, you know, there's two problems with that always, right? One is that like, do workers know that it exists? And two, are the federal protections actually able to be implemented in these places? And again, I live in New Orleans. I live in Louisiana. Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, all places where big hurricanes are just going to keep coming. And these are the places where the, you know, the state government is just happy to remove somebody. And again, I, I count the quote unquote Democrat governor of Louisiana um, part of that. And of course, the third thing is whistleblowers might speak out, but will anything change as a result of their whistleblowing, you know? 
like, will conditions improve for the other workers? <laughs> you know, we don't know, right? Right, right. And this is why, like, stories like this one in The Great Escape are, are so interesting, right? Because it wasn't one whistleblower, it was hundreds. And they had to get hundreds of people to, you know, escape these labor camps at the same time that that, like, makes it such a great story, right? Because it's, it is a story of these sort of massive collective action. Um, yeah. And that is also true that, like, you know, what these protections... Um, what a sort of DACA for whistleblowers will actually still like be the most useful in protecting against is, is those workers organizing because like yeah. more of them are more likely to be able to access those protections yeah. rather than a sort of individual worker being able to like sneak away and right. save themselves. But the organizing is always like the key part of it, right? Because it's like no one would have been able to come forward if there hadn't been actual grassroots you know, community organizing happening throughout that process. And right. if, you know, the things hadn't fallen into place just to make it possible for them to sort of build a community like that, you know, and so it's like federal policy can only go so far, right? Even even the best intentioned regulations, you know, you still, there still needs to be a human element and even cooperation with law enforcement, as we see, can often right. be a double-edged sword. We didn't get a chance to talk to Saket about the resilience force, but that this is one of several projects of sort of organizing the workers who respond to disaster and really thinking about the fact that there are going to be more of these disasters coming with climate change. And therefore, we need to have organized and trained and aware of their rights workers going forward, because this is just going to keep happening if we pretend that the disasters are not going to keep happening. So that kind of organizing, National Day Labor Organizing Network put out a report a while back that we discussed on the show about day laborers as second responders and disasters, right? That they're not the immediate healthcare workers, but they're the ones who are coming in and doing the cleanup and the rebuilding. And what does it mean to actually like value that labor as much as we sort of, well, at least say we value first responders? Yeah. You know, what we call disasters do often seen as a pretext for making exceptions or deregulating things, right? But if we start to realize that those disasters are going to be the new normal, right? Then we can, uh, we need to also make sure that exploitation is not also the normal. That's all we have time for this week, and that is all for this season. Thank you for being with us the past 10 years, and if you have just discovered us now, welcome to Belabored. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for having hosted us for all that time, to Natasha Lewis, Colin Kinneborough, and now Casey Stone for editing and producing us, and most importantly, to you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends and on all those annoying social media websites, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us over the years. We would especially appreciate it, of course, if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever app you are getting your podcasts on. It really does help us find new listeners. And special, special thanks to those of you who have been supporting us financially over the past 10 years over at the Descent website or at Patreon, patreon.com belabored. We've been doing this show regularly for the past 10 years, and just now this year have switched to a seasonal structure rather than doing it every two weeks all year long to help us have a more sustainable working life. But I want to pause here as we wrap up for this season to be very, very honest with all of you. We have been producing this show at what amounts to a loss for almost all of those 10 years. 
Michelle and I are committed to continuing the show if at all possible, but it is getting harder and harder to do that without increasing our income. The rent, as you all know, is too damn high, and inflation doesn't stop for labor journalists. So if you love the show and you want us to keep it going, the best way that you can do that is by going to patreon.com slash belabored and kicking in now. I know that everybody's asking for your money right now, and we hate doing it. We really wish that, um, you know, we lived under full communism, but then we wouldn't need to have a labor podcast at all. So if you've been meaning to get around to it for a while, but assumed we were doing fine, this would be a gentle note that we're really not. And this would be the time to help us out as we are making decisions on when and how the next season will be coming to you. Thank you to all of you who are already supporters. And we do continue to have great gifts for new subscribers, including right now a limited number of Work Won't Love You Back union-made tote bags while our supply lasts. And of course, if you want to share your story of working or organizing or not working, you can as always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are an oil rig worker or a teacher, a warehouse worker or a delivery driver, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thanks as always for listening. We'll be back soon. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.